from the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show, a full hour of stimulating, thought-provoking information you need to know, plus a whole lot more. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. Welcome to the Jeff Nyquist Program. I am Jeff Nyquist, your host, and I will be discussing two themes on this radio show. First, I will be discussing ways in which America has been changing. In my lifetime, for example, we've seen the rise of feminism, the legalization of abortion, and the sexual revolution. We have seen a half-century of rising crime, falling test scores, and epidemic obesity. There is a second theme I'll be discussing on the show, America's Enemies who they are, and what they're planning. We all know about Al-Qaeda. What about Russia with all its nuclear weapons? What about China as it builds the world's largest military machine? The Chinese general Sun Tzu, over 2,500 years ago, said, Know yourself and know your enemy, and you will not be defeated in a hundred battles. Americans need to know themselves, and they need to know their enemies. It's not just a matter of philosophy. It's a matter of survival. We have seen devastating U.S. intelligence failures in recent years. It seems that the pattern is clear. I believe that changes in the fabric of American society are contributing to a type of blindness. I also believe that our country's enemies are determined to take advantage of emerging weaknesses in American society. America today is seen as the most successful, wealthiest, powerful society in the world. I believe it is an error to judge America as it appears today. One must consider what America is becoming. In keeping with this theme, my guest today is Jean Twenge, Associate Professor of Psychology at San Diego State University and author of Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. Yes, you've gathered some fascinating data on generation differences over the past decades. What did you basically find when you compared today's young people with older generations? Well, this is based on a very large data set of 1.3 million young people, we call students and children, who filled out psychological questionnaires between the 1950s and the present. I've been doing this research for quite a, quite a while now, about 15 years. And when I brought together all of the research results, what seemed to be the central theme, what seemed to explain all of these otherwise disparate trends, was the focus on the individual. So moving toward focusing on the self and moving away from social rules and duty and honor and those types of ideas. Uh, would it, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, would it be fair to say then that family, God, and country is somehow short-changed then if, if the self is becoming more important and these other things are becoming less important? Well, there's upsides and downsides to every trend, and that includes this one. So there is an upside of greater tolerance and uh, more equal roles, and that can actually in some cases be good for families. But on the other hand, there are some big downsides. So one of those downsides, for example, is that young people are now higher in narcissism, which is a negative side of focusing on the self. And sure enough, people who are narcissists are not very good at relationships, and they're not very good at getting along with others. 
And they also are not very good at sacrificing any of their own needs for those of other people or for their country. So obviously there's exceptions uh, to this rule. We still have um, young people who are serving in our, in our volunteer military service. Mm-hmm. But on average, young people have shifted. So this generation now is significantly more narcissistic than their parents' generation was. Now, when you say significantly more, what kind of data are you seeing? How significant is this shift toward narcissism? And of course, like you say, it's not every individual, but it's just a trend throughout a large population. Yes. So the data that we have um, are from 16,000 college students who filled out the narcissistic personality inventory at some point between 1982 and 2006. So the shift that we found is... um, it's, and then again, this is a shift in, in the average score. It moved from, uh, if you consider in the 1982 that the average person would score the 50th percentile, that had shifted. So by 2006, the average person scored at the 65th percentile by uh, those 1980 standards. And that's 30% more scoring above the average from the 1980s recently. So that's what we're seeing is 30% more are scoring above the average. Wow, that is a significant shift. Now, in your book, you talk about the self-esteem curriculum in our schools having something to do with this. Uh, what what exactly does it have to do with it? Well, um, in a lot of schools, including preschools, so with our youngest children, um, there is this emphasis on telling kids that they're special and and giving them praise, uh, and it's it's. Praise not based on anything. So praise based on actual performance is good and motivating. But this is praise where children are are told things like, you're special just for being you. You should feel good about yourself no matter what. My favorite example of a self-esteem boosting activity is one done in preschools, and it's a song sung to the tune of Sarah Jaka that goes, I am special, I am special, look at me. Another version goes, I am special, I'm special just because. Hmm, that's interesting. And and now now to get back to narcissism, uh, let's define it. It it does have a technical uh, definition in psychology, doesn't it? It does. It means having an inflated sense of self, and that basically you're focusing very much on your own needs. It also involves some degree of physical vanity, but it goes beyond that. It's also about manipulativeness and attention seeking. I see. And so uh, it it is considered a personality disorder? It is considered a personality trait. And the way that we measure that is variations in narcissism across a normal population. At the very high end of narcissism, you do get narcissistic personality disorder, but that's not what we're talking about in this case. I see. Just we're talking about more narcissism that is more sort of... uh, now, there's some element of unrealistic self-regard in this, isn't there? There is. So narcissists think that they are smarter and more beautiful and more successful than everyone else. But when you look at objective measures, they're actually not. They're just like the rest of us. They mm-hmm. just think that they're better than everyone else. And if they're smarter and they're all those other things, then they deserve more than everyone else. Yes. And so that's what we see in lab studies some research done by my colleague Keith Campbell and some of his students shows that when narcissists are confronted with common resources, resources have to be shared by everyone, 
they take more for themselves and thus leave less for other people. Does this mean that we have a social problem here? It very well could because we have moved much more toward that self-focus. So it, we, I can talk about it in terms of this rise in narcissism that we see in the data, but I think a lot of people will recognize this if they just think about some of the phrases that we tell young children and teenagers. So we emphasize so much to put yourself first. We tell people things like you shouldn't care what other people think of you. And in general, we just seem to focus so much on self-feelings rather than behavior and rather than the impressions and relationships with others. Hmm. In your book, you cite a report from the Tarrant County, Texas School District. The district found that 93% of 39 schools in their district agreed that kindergartners have more emotional and behavioral problems than they had five years ago. So this problem is getting worse if it's showing up in kindergarten gardeners just here in the early 21st century. It does seem to be, to be getting worse. I, I don't see any slowdown in, in these trends. It's still just completely taken for granted, for example, to tell kids over and over that they're special. When this narcissism study came out, so many young people said, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with telling kids that they're special? Can't everybody be special? Well, if you look at the word special in the dictionary, no, that's not what the word special means. And especially when you're telling little kids how special they are, it ends up being, I'm special, give me my cookie right now. They see it for, well, they know what the word means, actually some, maybe better than older people do, hmm. and they end up really being very demanding and sometimes even aggressive. Now, is it true that narcissists and people who are quote-unquote special, they often see themselves as above the rules? Yes. So that's one of the other characteristics we see. And it's something else that I think there's been a society-wide trend. Question authority, for example, that's now become very acceptable that you stand up for your own rights um, to question their rules and not take them at face value. And that goes along with that individualism and self-focus, but it does come specifically from narcissism as well because if you are just thinking about what's right for you, then you're not going to follow the rules. But that's what we're telling kids. It's not that they came up with this on their own. We tell kids, do what's right for you, and then we're surprised when they act that way. Yeah, it was interesting. The science fiction writer Robert A. Heinlein wrote a book years ago in which he said that the term juvenile delinquent is an oxymoron, that it is the parent that is delinquent or the teacher, not the juvenile, because we have taught them to be the way they are. And that's, that's, we have to moderate that a little bit because, yes, in, a, in, in the case of self-focus and narcissism, I do think that is absolutely true. We, we've taught kids to focus on themselves. We've taught them they're special, and then we're shocked when they act as if they deserve special treatment. On the other hand, there are obviously cases in which um, parents have and teachers have done mm-hmm. everything they can, and, and the, the young person is, is uh, just very defiant anyway. So we do have to take a moderate course on things. Now, when I was teaching, I taught from 1985 to 1991, and I saw changes in the junior highs especially. Uh, there were When I first started teaching, I was amazed at how well-ordered some of the junior high schools were, and they would get these new administrators. Older fellows would retire, and new ones would come in. I'd be substituting in two different school districts. And um, all of a sudden, the behavior would just 
go. The the behavior problems would be massive. And I remember one school that had been, you know, acceptable behavior the previous year. And in the, the new year, I uh, came in and the, the students rioted in the class. I had to send seven of them out of the classroom. And when I came back the next week to teach the same children, uh, they mocked me and said, they didn't do anything to us. Ha, ha, ha. And I, I was... I was stunned. I called them up and told them I didn't want to teach there anymore. And um, when I read this about the Texas school system, it kind of brings that to mind. It, are we removing punishment? Is that part an element in this? It, it can be. So, for example, some people believe that you should not correct children's mistakes mm-hmm. because that will harm their self-esteem and then they won't subsequently do well, which is very misguided because actually children learn, of course, from getting their mistakes corrected. And the same is true for behavior problems, that if these things are not corrected, you shouldn't worry so much about the self-feeling. You should worry about the behavior because that's what will actually lead to true healthy Mm self-esteem is behaving well. Yeah. And of course, in the real world, there are consequences for behaving badly very serious consequences uh, at work and in relationships and uh, all across the map. Exactly. And that that's the problem is that we live in this world uh, where you don't get a participation trophy for showing up at work every day. You actually have to do the work and achieve something. Yeah. So we're giving kids this false idea that it doesn't take much to get praised. Now, there are some good, there is an upside to this, like you said. These are people who are more tolerant. Uh, They're more open-minded in a lot of respects. They don't have a lot of the old prejudices that their parents had. So there are some good things here, too, in this psychology of upbringing. Definitely. So that that is a major upside. When I asked my undergraduates a couple years ago about to name five traits of their generation, tolerant and open-minded were the two most common things. And they're right. If you if you look at the at the data, this is a generation that is much more open minded about roles for women and minorities. And they just don't really think it's a big deal that a woman is is doing whatever or that a um someone who's a different color than they are is uh dating somebody else and they're in a different color. They just don't really see that as controversial at all. So they just uh are more skilled at dealing with difference than mm-hmm. previous generation. Yeah, that and it seems to be emphasized in their education. So you know, it is it is kind of uh, nice to hear as a teacher that that they actually people do actually imbibe what you teach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I I want to talk about cheating for a moment here. You we mentioned narcissism and feeling above the rules and and feeling special. I had this conversation with a teacher three weeks ago. She's a she's a 30-year-old high school instructor in the local school district up here. And, and I asked her about cheating in, among her students, and she said, yes, it's, it's epidemic, you know. And then she volunteered that she had cheated in high school and college and that it was no big deal. How does that fit with your findings? It, it does fit, actually. And... There is good evidence um, based on some, some research done by some um, some other uh, researchers that cheating is up since the 1960s. Um, there are more high school and college students who, who cheat now than, than they used to. And that's 
partially from this emphasis on do what's right for you and you shouldn't care what anyone else thinks and question authority. Because if you're not going to follow the rules and if the rules aren't important and you're just doing things right for you, why wouldn't you cheat? If it's and then that uh, it's very interesting that oh it's not a big deal it's the everyone else is doing it argument and then just this blase attitude comes from this self focus and this idea that rules aren't meant to be followed. Yeah, that's very interesting. The the what she explained to me was that why do I need to know all those formulas for you know it's just a bunch of meaningless hoop jumping and. I had the feeling that when I was teaching at the college level, I was a teaching assistant in graduate school some years back, that a lot of the students, they didn't care to learn anything. They just wanted the grade. Yeah, and that's that's the problem, that they don't see any reason to follow the rules, that it hasn't been emphasized why it is important to do so. And so is it possible that we're educating experts who don't really know what their credentials claim that they know? Well, that does seem to be the case in um, a lot of, say, high school graduates who graduate and can't read. And then we have the, that same problem showing up in, in college a lot of times, too, that graduating people who may not be as literate as we would like. And, of course, cheating has been around for a while. I had a very frightening conversation with a former CIA analyst. Uh, he had been to his class reunion, and the subject of cheating had come up in his class reunion, and these people were starting to admit, and these are people that work at the CIA and in various government agencies, they, they were admitting that they had cheated. And, of course, he was a bit of a dork, and he didn't, and he, he was very stunned and, and shocked. Uh, at this, and of course, these are the people that are, you know, we've had these intelligence failings lately in Iraq and elsewhere before 9-11, and where the government, you know, s said certain things, and they didn't turn out to be true, and we have a president who's not an expert, who has to be led by experts. Is it possibly affecting our ability to make judgments this? It, it, it very well might, so those examples in the government are, are, are good ones, so hmm. to be pressure to do a good job, and then the idea that, well, you don't need to really follow the rules, then you can make stuff up. Of course, we have seen this in the business world as mm. well with scandals like those at Enron, yeah. where people were making up their um, quarterly results and exaggerating their profits. And we're going to probably have to see more regulation, more more laws like Sarbanes-Oxley, which require businesses and maybe even government eventually to more carefully document things because otherwise we can't tell if somebody's just cheating. Hmm. Cheating in business, it, it could have very serious impact on our well-being. Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt. You're in California, so you felt that energy uh, increase in, in your energy bill there from the Enron thing. Yep. Um, I'm going to talk about patriotism for a minute because... I was very interested when I taught high school about 15 years ago. I had uh, I I was amazed at at how charming and sophisticated a lot of the young people were, how personable they were. Uh, but I was also taken aback by their lack of respect. Uh, and you mentioned manipulativeness, um, and there was a sort of a brutality in their anger when they were thwarted. Um, are these sort of observable? These sort of changes observable in your data? They are so. In, in two ways. The first is that there has been a decline in a trait called need for social approval. 
So it's no longer considered to be such a required thing that you worry about other people's opinions and that you follow the rules. And in general, it's just not as important to consider other people's thoughts and opinions when you're doing things. And that may sound like a great amount of freedom, but if you consider what the world would be like if we really didn't care what others thought of us, it would be complete chaos and anarchy and nothing would ever get done and no one would stop at stop signs or cooperate in a group and it would be horrible. Mm -hmm. Another thing that comes to mind in what you said is there is some lab research showing that when people who are narcissistic are insulted or thwarted or rejected, they tend to react with aggression. Hmm. So that's uh, one of the things that you might see is people who have been brought up with these ideas about how they're always supposed to feel good about themselves, and they do, and they become narcissistic. Hmm. Then when they're threatened, they tend to lash out. Yeah, I can remember. I remember a scene. It was a PE class, and these two girls wanted to leave before the bell. And I told them no, and they got, I couldn't believe, you know, I mean, I was, nobody, when I was, I'm 48 years old, when I was in high school, we wouldn't have dared talk to a teacher the way these uh, girls talked. Um, it it just, uh, it floored me, and it really is so common now. It It is, and of course, we've got the whole peer group thing. They When one does it, they all, in some sense, do it or see it done and see that it's normalized. Yeah, so, and that... Not only that, but the, their parents have told them these things, that they should question authority oh. and that it's not really that important to stand uh, to follow the rules, that it's more important to stand up for yourself. Yeah. Well, talking about standing up, I had this one class. Um, they wouldn't stand for the flag salute in the morning. They'd just sit, sit and chatter with each other. And so I brought it up. I, you know, it was a U.S. government social studies class for seniors and I said, uh, so you don't uh, stand. Why is that? And they said, well, the country, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just ridiculous. Um, you know, who cares about that stupid stuff? And uh, I said, well, what if the country were bombed and invaded? Would you would you defend the country? And one boy pop piped up and he said, my mom says if there's a war, I'm going to Canada. And then a couple other boys said the same thing. And I said, so you, you don't want to fight if the country's attacked. And the boys all agreed. I said, well, how do you girls feel about that? You know, you'll be left here. The enemy soldiers will come and, and, and take your stuff and rape you. And the boys will be off in Canada. And the girls turned to the boys and they said, hey, yeah, what about us? And I got them to stand for the flag salute. But that's what it kind of took. It They weren't really taught. It seems like in their education, if they're getting all this self-esteem stuff, they weren't getting any, any stuff about the country about how important it was, you know, as us as a group, as a as a as a people. Exactly. So that 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 type of um, group mentality hasn't been taught. I mean, that that is one reason why we don't have a draft and we have an all volunteer army. Mm -hmm. Is that the country will no longer stand for that type of collective action? And there are good reasons not to have a draft outside of that, but mm -hmm. I think that's one of the main reasons that we did shift in that direction. And it could it does explain a sort of tolerance if you if you don't see your own country as important, then the distinction between us and them is sort of blurred over, and everybody's sort of the same. Everybody's sort of in the same boat. And you know, 
know, to an extent, that's good. I mean, if we can move toward a world where we don't have countries and we can all work together, that's wonderful. It's just that's a long way in the future. Yeah, it's not terribly. People are tribal, aren't they? And uh, yeah. they, when pushed comes to shove, it uh, it gets that way. Now, now you bring up also the point of materialism. Are young people today more materialistic? And and what does it mean to say that they're more materialistic than previous generations, especially here in America? And they, they are. So there's a survey that's done every year in the fall of um, freshmen at American colleges. It's um, a good, nice big sample. It's more than 100,000 students who fill out this survey at campuses across the country. And they have been asked every year since 1967 about the importance of being well off financially as a life goal. Mm-hmm. Back in the late 60s, only about 40% of then baby boomer college students said that was an important life goal, and now 75% of college students say that that's important. There's another survey done recently that asked about their generation's most important life goals, and 81% of 18- to 25-year-olds recently said that becoming rich was the most important goal of their generation. Hmm, becoming rich. Wow. Now... Now, let, let me go back over that. You have data going back how far on this? This isn't my data. This is data collected by some other researchers. Uh-huh. And their, um, the big survey of college freshmen goes back to 1967. And then this other poll was just done done at a, on a one-time basis. But it's a very interesting contrast. They asked 18 to 25-year-olds about their generation's important goals. And 81% said getting rich. 51% said becoming famous. But only 30% said helping other people. Only 20% said becoming leaders in their community, and only 10% said becoming more spiritual. So that was a very interesting view and ranking of the goals of this now young generation. So this is a non-heroic kind of. They're not seeing themselves as doing something noble, but doing something that's going to advance them materially. Yes, so that that seems to be the the uh, common thread, and that is also what we would expect from a group of people who are more narcissistic, because narcissists are more focused on material things than people who are, who are not as narcissistic. So Generation Me, as I call them, mm-hmm. is definitely more materialistic than previous generations. Hmm. That is most interesting. And, and now, there seems to be some kind of connection here with cynicism. Is there more cynicism among this generation? There is. So Generation Me believes that nothing they do really matters all of that all that much. Um, they don't think that they can have an effect on the country and on politics by doing anything. And they also express that getting a good job depends on being in the right place at the right time and attitudes like this. And that... If we're going to do well in school, well, it just takes luck and it takes getting the easy teacher. And at first, that may seem contradictory with the idea of self-focus, but it does fit because let's say you take a test and you do badly on it. Well, if you have an inflated sense of self, then you may have that sense of self-question if you acknowledge, well, maybe I'm not very smart or maybe, you know, I didn't work very hard. But if you blame the teacher, then you can preserve your inflated sense of self even after you did badly on the test. And so that idea of cynicism and none of it is my fault does seem to fit in with it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I was also interested, when I taught, I noticed that the standards had decreased, that they were giving 
B's and A's for work that would have gotten C's and D's before. Um, and it, it seemed that um, the assignments were easier. Not as much work was given to the students. And when you gave them a serious hard assignment, they would all loudly moan that it was so unfair. Um, is this also part of it? Is that is that they they don't want to have more responsibility or more of a challenge? Well, yes and no. So there definitely there has been a slide in standards. There's more grade inflation now, and um, that same survey of college freshmen found that fewer of them are saying that they spent a lot of hours studying when they were in high school. So there has been a slide in academic standards. On the other hand, it's it's harder to get into college now. It's harder to get a good job. It's harder to buy a house. So a lot of the basics of life are more difficult, and they, and it is more competitive. So although we've got sliding standards, we also have a more difficult reality that this generation does have to deal with. So they can't really afford to be lazy. They can afford to groan and argue, and they do that plenty. But they often have to work fairly hard and they have to carefully package themselves a lot of times to be able to reach their goals in life. So there's less opportunity now for this generation than there was for their parents. That's right. So it's harder to get into college, and it's much harder to pay for that college education than it once was. Uh, for example, federal grants for education have gone way down, and college tuition at the same time has gone way up. I mean, it's just one example. The University of California used to be free, and, of course, those days are long past. You had a statistic about um, the number of uh, students that saw themselves going to graduate school, and I can't remember what that was, but it was very large. Yes. So 50% of high school students say that they're going to earn a graduate degree. More than likely, if historical figures um, are any indication, less than 10% of them will actually do so. And that, that's been true for a long time now. So if you look at... Um, the percentage of people, percentage of high school graduates who earn graduate degrees, it's always been about 8%. Yet the expectations have shifted. In the mid 70s, only about 25% of high school students said they were likely to earn a graduate degree, and so that's doubled. So there's a larger gap now between expectations and reality than there ever was before. So there's a much higher expectations and lower opportunities. So Earning a graduate degree, that's, that stayed flat, but there's a lot of other things where the opportunities have actually disappeared. So college, as I mentioned, is more more difficult to get into now and pay for, but um, getting good jobs. And the thing that is a difficult reality is the economics of, of living today. It used to be that a man with a high school education, not even a college education, but just a high school education, could usually buy a house in a safe neighborhood for his family. And in many areas of the country, it now takes the income of two college-educated people to be able to buy a house in a nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it has really gotten out of hand in that, that regard. So is there a resentment then in the younger generation for this uh, when they find out that the opportunities are really much smaller than, than as advertised? I think there is. So... At first, there's such high expectations that every young person believes that they're going to be the exception to the rule. They're the ones who are going to be rich and famous. They'll make a million dollars. 
So it doesn't really matter that things are more difficult because they'll be the exception. And then once they get into their first jobs, and then especially as their 20s continue, they may find happiness in in the job and they may do reasonably well, but there's a big feeling of disillusionment when they realize that although they were raised to believe things like you can be anything you want to be, and then they realize that they probably won't even be able to afford condominium, there is a lot of disillusionment, especially when people hit their mid to late 20s. When eighty, more than 80% want to be rich, and that's unrealistic, the percentage is going to be smaller, and the opportunity is less, this has got to lead to disillusionment, and it's got to lead to maybe depression or a psychological crisis, maybe. Exactly. So there's good data on both anxiety and depression. They have both increased over the generations. Wow. College counseling centers say that they see many more people who are depressed and anxious. Of course, we all know that many more young people are on drugs like Prozac now than ever were before. And I think that trend is probably going to continue, and perhaps because of this disillusionment. How much of an increase in depression, I mean, have we? do we have good measurements on that? We do, although they're not, they're not as updated as they should be. These are studies done by medical researchers, and they found, for example, that among people born in the early 1900s, a very small percentage of them ever had major depression, maybe about 2% or so. Mm-hmm. And in more recent generations, that percentage has risen as high as 25%. As high as 25 so, Yeah, so one out of four people in the more recent generations have experienced a major episode of depression at some point during their lives. That is astonishing. And, of course, from the generation born around 1900, we didn't have very many people going uh, crazy and shooting their classmates. Yes. As, Yeah, go ahead. That's right. Yes, so I was just looking at um, the Time magazine coverage of the Virginia Tech shootings, for example, and it was very interesting. I mean, there, there have been serial killers for a long time, but these mass shootings, these massive news events where they, they take the lives of so many people in such a short period of time, that is a relatively modern development. They, school shootings didn't really happen at any high level until about 1991 is what that graph shows. Mm-hmm. So these massive events are relatively recent development. As, of course, the whole population is becoming more narcissistic, we would then find ourselves with more people who are really have the narcissistic personality disorder tending even to uh, serious delusions about themselves. That's right. So when you have a change in average, in, in the average score, any change in the average means that you're going to end up with more people at that very high end of the scale. It's still going to be a relatively small percentage of people, but it will be more than it was previously because the average has shifted. What is the relationship to these personality disorders like narcissistic personality disorder to mental illness? Well, it's a fairly complex picture, but people um, who who do fit that, that small percentage who have narcissistic personality disorder they often have other have other problems as well. Mm-hmm. So depression, for example, is common, perhaps because they go throughout their lives expecting to be treated like royalty, and they are disappointed when they're not treated that way. Mm-hmm. 
And what is the, I mean, maybe you don't know this question, but what is the prognosis for someone with uh, narcissistic personality disorder? Is it treatable? My understanding, uh, and I'm not a clinician, but my understanding is that it, it can be treated to an extent, but that a lot of people with that disorder are hopeless cases, that it's difficult to convince someone who, who is so high in themselves that they should come back to reality. And sometimes life teaches that lesson, mm-hmm. but it is, it is less treatable than, for example, depression. Depression is a lot more treatable than narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Wow. Well, with, with me is, is Associate Professor of Psychology at San Diego State University, Jean Twenge, and her book is Generation Me, and we've been discussing this. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, there was a, how, how does all this affect the workplace? You cite in your book an AP article entitled The Entitlement Generation, which quotes employers complaining that young employees today expect raises and promotions too soon. Is, it, is there a, a, a rising problem in the working environment? Uh... Yeah, this is what I hear from, from a lot of managers. Um, they, they say that young people come in and think they're going to be vice president within five years. Um, a lot of young people want a job that has everything, that it pays six figures and it will change the world and it will be very fulfilling those types of jobs are extremely rare. So what happens is that there's a lot of job hopping. So young people are searching around for the perfect job for them. Well, the perfect job usually doesn't exist. Now, the one that's the best fit for them, hopefully they will eventually find that. But in that process, they realize that the perfect job really isn't out there. And the problem is then companies have a lot more expenses for retraining, Mm -hmm. and they also have to deal with, some of these young people who are so focused on, you know, becoming rich and famous or so focused on getting promoted that they're not actually doing the job that they were hired to do. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, you, you write in your book, narcissists, people who really love themselves, are not good at getting along with others. And right. so that has to apply to the workplace, too. Exactly. So that's the other problem that you end up with because narcissists have a hard time taking someone else's perspective and they lack empathy, so they are not going to be very good at getting along with uh, their coworkers, and in some cases, clients and customers. And uh, let's talk about marriage for a second. You you mentioned in your book that having a stable marriage is one of the most robust predictors of happiness in life. And narcissists are spectacularly bad relationship partners, aren't they? And they are. They tend to cheat. They game play. They don't value their partner um, for, say, a partner's own accomplishments. They only care how those how those things reflect on them. So uh, the the uh, the classic example is the narcissist who has the, the trophy wife. They don't really care about the person, just that she looks good on on uh, on their arm. And in in general, they are very bad relationship partners because they just are so focused on themselves and they're not very good at compromising and they're not very good at doing things for other people. It would be horrible to be in a relationship with someone who lies, cheats, and manipulates you. And who doesn't really care about your own needs. Yeah. that's. Uh, you have an interesting statistic in your book. You you say that more than four times as Americans, uh, four times as many Americans describe, them, describe themselves as lonely now than in 1957. Yeah, so 
there does seem to be an epidemic of, of loneliness, and for good reason. More people are living alone. People marry later. Um, there was a study that came out last year showing that Americans now say there are fewer people they feel they can confide in. So mm. friendships and relationships with, with others are, are more shallow, apparently, than they used to be. Oh, more and more people spend time alone than ever before, and that is obviously going to lead to more feelings of loneliness. Selfishness doesn't work, does it? That's the thing. The self is not a very good basis for mental health. For that, you need those strong, emotionally close relationships with other people. Of course. Uh, now, let's talk about changes in sexual morality. I was interested in the one chapter in your book. You talked about what young people were telling you, that, that the biggest difference between themselves and their parents was about sex. Yeah, I heard that over and over. Um, a lot of young people today, their parents are baby boomers, and there's a popular perception that baby boomers are, it was about free love and so on, but that was a pretty small percentage of the generation. The average baby boomer woman in 1970 married when she was 21 years old. So there was not as much free love and running around as one might think in that generation. And so a lot of these students' parents were... I'm very uncomfortable with premarital sex and all kinds of, um, you know, behaviors that their that their children just thought, found found to be pretty acceptable. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, about premarital sex. I mean, what do we know about how much is it's going on, and how early are children or young people having sex? That has changed. So the data. Um, in this, this paper, this is a student of mine named Brooke Wells who did this, this uh, project for her master's thesis. And she gathered 500 studies of sexual attitudes and behaviors over time. And many of those studies looked at the average age of virginity. And in the 1950s, that average age was 18 or 19. And by the late 1990s, that average age at losing your virginity had dropped to 15. And... In the 50s, the, the age that people got married at was closer to 18 or 19. It was. For women, the average age of marriage in the 1950s was 20. And for men, it was uh, between 22 and 23. Hmm. And in the 1990s, the average age of marriage is? About 25 for hmm. women and about 27 for men. And 15. Now, a 15-year-old is a freshman in high school? That's right. Wow. And that's the average? That's, that was the average in the, uh, the latest data that we had was, was the late 90s. There's some reason to believe that that uh, number might have, have gone up um, since the late 90s, that it might be more like 16 now. But that's still a fairly young age. Mm -hmm. And now, but we're not seeing an increase in teen pregnancies, though. That's right. Teen pregnancies are actually down um, since the early 90s. That's a piece of good news. Um, so it, it could be that there's, there's less teen sex going on, say, in the last 10 years. However, it's also entirely possible that the sex is still going on, but more young people are using birth control. And there's also, there was this piece in Atlantic Monthly, I think it was about a year ago, about oral sex being this big rage. And uh, yes. you had in your book some statistic like 14% in junior high or something were engaging in it. Uh, could you tell us anything about that? Well, that's an activity that even the baby boomers, for all their 
supposed liberation we're not all that comfortable with. And the young generation is very comfortable with that and often uses it as a substitute for intercourse. So if they feel like they're not ready for intercourse, then they'll engage in oral sex, and that's something that they find more acceptable and to be less serious than intercourse. And, of course, their, their parents may see that differently. In fact, some young people have said that it's not really sex, right? Yes. So that's a very common attitude that, if you have had oral sex but not intercourse, that you're still a virgin. Oh, that's interesting. That that kind of reminds me of a former president that we had. Yeah, uh, well, he was a little ahead of his time in that one attitude. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a very interesting situation. Now, you're working on a book on young people and sex, uh, sex attitudes and stuff now, aren't you? Uh, I'm working on a book about relationships and their importance, and that's something that will certainly include um, some material on on, uh, on sexuality, but it will mainly focus on the importance of relationships for people of all ages. Oh, okay, for people of all ages. Now, is there any evidence that, that now we you've got this snapshot of younger people now, is there any evidence that people sort of grow out of, of these early phases, uh, that, that perhaps teenagers are more focused on themselves than adults? Is there any uh, indication? Yes, that, that does seem to be true, that older people are um, less narcissistic. Um, however, the, 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 what the data that we have on, on narcissism shows is that young people now are more narcissistic than their parents were at, at the same age because you were looking at baby boomers in college who say, you know, we're 20 years old and in uh, the early 1980s and then Gen Xers who were also college age in the 90s. So young people have always been narcissistic, but young people now are more narcissistic than young, young people were a generation ago. Hmm. And so how is this impacting parenting, this narcissism? Well, there's a lot of parenting that seems to build the narcissism rather than attenuate it. Um, it's very common, for example, um, for parents to have the, the kid ends up in charge of the house, sometimes um, they didn't intend it to be this way, but they ask the child what they want all the time. Do you want to go to the park now? Do you want to leave the park now? What, what do you want for dinner? What do you want to wear? Because American parents have been taught that giving their kids choices is good, and to an extent, limited choices are fine. Do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes is a good way to motivate a child, but more open-ended questions like what do you want for dinner? The problem is with a two-year-old, the answer is often cookies. <laughs> and the kid ends up in charge of the house, and then they, yeah. they learn that they can get what they want, which builds narcissism. My other pet peeve, I have a, a six-month-old daughter, and when I shop for clothes for her, um, I would say a good one-fourth of the things that I could buy end up something that I wouldn't even consider because they say little princess on them. Mm. Clothes for baby girls say this. It, it, it's amazing to me how common this is across several different different brands, and no matter what the, the type, you know, whether it's pajamas or, or shirts, so many of them say this. So it's become acceptable to treat your kids like royalty and to proclaim that on their clothing. Hmm. So Generation Me is bringing up Generation Me, Me, Me. Yeah, I would agree with that, yes. That's, that's amazing. Um, wow. And uh, I, I wonder, the, 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 there's an interesting thing that that happened. I don't know if you remember, right after 9-11, uh, 
I drove by the movie theater, and I saw very few cars parked in front. I drove by the mall, and it was like the parking lot was almost empty. And there were more people in church that week. And it seemed like the whole mood of the country had changed. Do you think it's possible that, that all this, this change in the way we're bringing up young people and, and so on has to do with our prosperity, the peace and prosperity we've enjoyed, and that, that if the country returned to harder conditions, either economic conditions or war in which people were immediately endangered, that a lot of this would, would change rather quickly? I think it would, it would have to change to an extent. Um, in, in those types of crises, you know, most people would you have you do what you have to do. It would be an awfully difficult transition, I think. And I'm not sure it would entirely go away. So if there were economic problems, for example, this type of competition and every, every man for himself, those types of attitudes might just get worse. You know, it's interesting. I once read, a psychologist once told me that the classic case in narcissism was Benedict Arnold, that he was a, that he was sort of like a classic case. He was a guy that, that I guess divorced or left his wife for a, a wealthier woman. Uh, he betrayed his country for his own personal reasons. Um, and, and that uh, if you want to look for people who are going to betray their country or not do the right thing by their community, that you're looking for these more narcissistic traits. Is it possible then that this generation, if we do have a crisis, will will not be as reliable or patriotic in an emergency? It's it's very difficult to tell because people who are narcissistic do like seeking attention and they like the idea that they can make a difference. So in the end, then they may end up being motivated. But if we are asking people to do things that involve a lot of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. we may run into big trouble because this is not a generation that has been raised on self-sacrifice and they don't really know how to do it, at least right now. And maybe they can learn, but it would be tough. Uh, is there any indication that they who their heroes are? Their heroes tend to be media celebrities or pseudo-celebrities like Paris Hilton mm. instead of, say, politicians. There's been a shift in um, surveys that have been done on heroes, and now heroes are sports figures and movie stars and people who are famous for I can't even tell what, like Paris Hilton, instead of military leaders and politicians. So there's been a real shift towards celebrity and away from valuing the country's leaders. Hmm. So they wouldn't think of Washington or Lincoln or some great military hero. They would tend to think of a sports star or a rock star or a movie star. Exactly. Hmm. That is That is different. So celebrity rather than hero is what they're focused on. Um, and do you have any other comments at all about sort of where you see things headed? Is there going to be a change? I mean, I know in your book you recommend, you know, dumping the self-esteem education. Is there anything like that that you would recommend? Yeah, so that's one thing that we need to eliminate is these songs where kids think about how special they are, this focus on increasing self-esteem. It doesn't work that way. You can't raise a child's self-esteem without any particular basis and then expect it to lead to good outcomes. Research shows very definitively it doesn't work that way. That self-esteem has to be based on something. So the accomplishment um, of good grades and good behavior has to come first, and then that can build a a self-esteem that actually has a basis. What we can do is teach self-control. So 
learning to persevere, even when you have a difficult task, like, say, a math problem, learning to delay gratification, learning to try hard and work hard, those are things that actually do lead to success in the long run, and it'd be much better to concentrate on those and move away from worrying so much about kids feeling good about themselves. Yes. Well, Jean, you're very brave. You must have gotten a lot of criticism for for honestly stating these facts about the generational changes. Not as much as you might think. Um, I've, I've been reading the editorials in a lot of college newspapers in response to this narcissism study, and many of them make the argument better than I ever could. They interview their fellow students who say narcissistic things, or they'll say, but I am special, and our generation is special. <laughs> and here's, and it, it's interesting to me because what they do is they, they, they question the idea that it's bad to tell a kid that they're special. They don't question that they were told it or that they think it themselves. Hmm. They, they, uh, just, they take issue with the idea that that's a bad thing. And, of course, you know, unfortunately... For them, there's a many decades of research showing that is it is indeed a bad thing to think that you're special. And because they're so young, they're not quite aware of how different they are from their elders. Exactly. That is also interesting to me. They don't have that perspective, and we don't teach history as much, so they don't quite understand. And it is an amazing barrier. Uh, I think older people don't quite understand the difference in the mentality of the younger people, and the younger people don't really understand their parents or their grandparents. Yes, I mean, and that, that is one reason why I hope people will read the book is that's what I hope to, one thing I hope to do was to help younger people gain a perspective on their generation and those that, that preceded them and for older people to try to understand the young generation and what they were brought up with and the challenges that they face. Hmm. Well, uh, Jean Twenge, uh, author of Generation Me, uh, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. Uh, how can uh, how can they get your book? And you have a website, too. I do. Uh, my website is www.generationme.org. And the book is easily available on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, Borders, most major bookstores. It's often shelved in the social science section. Yes, and very well worth reading. I recommend it to everyone. Jean, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Okay, take care. You know, I, I found an interesting quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, and I thought I'd, I'd share it with you because it relates to the, the question of change. And, and it's been said that uh, modern Western civilization is like a runaway train. It, it, it's going faster and faster down the tracks. We don't know quite where it's going, that eventually it's going to either have to jump the tracks or smash up. And here's what Alexis de Tocqueville wrote um, over 150 years ago. He said, The Christian nations of our day appear to me to present a frightening spectacle. The change carrying them along is already powerful enough for it to be impossible to stop, yet not swift enough for us to despair of bringing it under control. It's a very, very interesting statement. The political narcissist, just like the regular narcissist that we've been talking about today, has always been a bloody monster. Hitler was a narcissist. Stalin was a narcissist. Mao Zedong was a mar narcissist. The great tyrants and dictators have always been narcissistic, and their followers have always been willing to unleash violence on the designated enemy. If we want to understand our enemies, we want to understand what's happening within ourselves, we have to understand narcissism, and we have to understand how dangerous it is and why it has to be combated. 
Peace and prosperity exist in moments only. If we become a narcissistic nation, we could lose our peace, our tranquility, our prosperity. We could lose it in the blinking of an eye. We know that history is, after all, full of wars. It's punctuated by violent change. And this is what history teaches. We need to learn. We need to learn those values that kept us at peace and kept us strong all this time. We need to cling to those. And we need to get away from these this reinventing of the wheel, this, this remaking of youth, this remaking of education where we have thrown out the old rules, saying, oh, the old rules are bad. Uh, they merely hurt the personality, the developing personality of the young person. But wait a minute, those rules were in existence at a time when America was rising, when, when the standard of living was rising, when technological achievement was rising, when we were inventing new things and discovering new things. But, but now we get rid of those rules. Maybe we will start moving downhill. Maybe we're already in decline. And so I think we have to realize that that if if narcissism breeds Napoleons and war and and civil disturbances and, and poverty, that maybe that's what we are storing up for ourselves now today with the spread of narcissism in our society. There's a historian named uh, Christian Meyer and he wrote we may well have reached a point in time when we must ask ourselves if it can be true that all of world history has been staged for our sake, those of us alive today. Now, that's an, the ultimate narcissistic thought, that everything that's existed in history has brought forth the special person, ourselves. But no, there's history after us. We have to think about generations coming after us. And so those rules that used to exist they ought to apply to us, and we ought to bring them forward to us, and we should not set aside our traditions, our religious and moral traditions, for some newfangled kind of social science, some newfangled revolutionary answer that the Marxists and the leftists are promising us. And uh, just one more quote from Christian Meyer. So much ambition, effort, backbreaking labor, struggle, deprivation, suffering, sacrifice, murder, and mayhem, all for us? Now that, that would be too self-centered a view. You know, we have to see that we're part of that backbreaking suffering, that effort. We're also struggling for a future for other generations. And finally, I'll end with a quote from Edmund Burke who said, Those who do not look back to their ancestors will not look forward to their posterity. I want to thank you for listening. And you can visit my website. It's uh, www.jrnyquist.com. There's articles there. And uh, until next time, I am... Jeff Nyquist, and this has been the Jeff Nyquist Program. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time when Jeff's special guest will be a Russian Army doctor who has emigrated to the U.S. He will offer some personal insights on Russian medicine and the Russian Army. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.